All right, good evening. I'm not even going to try it again. We'll just leave it at that. Uh, anyway, thanks. thank you guys for being here tonight, all the way around the room. Uh, I know it's hard to get back out and come to church on a Sunday evening, especially if anybody here is a Dallas Cowboys fan. And they always play that late evening game, and there's a good game going on. If you're a Cowboys fan, uh, I think you've counted the cost, and you're, you're picking up your cross, and you're coming to church. So, uh, And I know somebody might be out there looking up the score as we speak. But anyway... If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy, and we'll be looking at, uh, I think it's the third or fourth sermon as we've been studying this book, and, and we're going to be looking at tonight, verses 12 through 17, and the whole question of the book of 1 Timothy is, if you're going to answer the question, what should the church be like, or look like, or act like, you're going to, you're going to turn to 1 Timothy. A lot of churches in our world today are turning to the book of Acts to tell them what the church should be like, and that's not the point of Acts. The point of 1 Timothy is to show us what the church ought to be like. That's why we're turning there. We want to know what God says the church has to be. So that's why we've turned here. And you get the clearest answer in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. So we've turned to 1 Timothy. And when you want to answer the question of what the message of the church should be, what should we be preaching? What should come out of the pulpit of the church? I think the clearest place for us to go is 1 Timothy chapter 1. So that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. And the title of the sermon is that what comes out of the pulpit of the church primarily should be the simple gospel. We're living in a very complicated time. And in a complicated time, the number one thing that people need to hear is the simple gospel. So that's what we're going to show you tonight. I'm not going to preach the simple gospel. I'm going to show you what the simple gospel is. And I'm going to show you how powerful the simple gospel is. So let's go ahead and we'll stand together. I want to read to you verses 12 through 17. And again, we're going to show you the simple gospel. Paul mentioned it as he was writing to 1 Timothy in verse 11. And again, this is the first chapter. So he's going to give us priority number one at the very outset of the book. So the message of the church is number one. So we mentioned the gospel in verse 11. He said, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And in verse 12, this will start where we go tonight. It says, and I, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding but abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. And this is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation. And this is what they say, the gospel in eight words. There's never been so much packed into one sentence. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Howbeit, for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now, unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Yes. Amen. Let's pray together and we'll look at the simple gospel. Father, we thank you for your word and how it guides us. I'm so thankful for 1 Timothy that we don't do church however we want to do church, that we have a God, uh, we have your word to show us what to do and how to do it and even what to preach, that we're not just winging it, and many churches are out there just winging it, but we got a book to go by. So God, help us to see how we ought to be, and if there's anywhere where we're in error, we want to be corrected, especially in this, the message of the church. If we lose the message, God, we lose everything. So teach us tonight what the primary message of the church should be. Teach us the simple gospel. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. 
I did an experiment this week, and, and I don't do this very often. I got it in my head, and I said, I'm going to try to do this, just to kind of give you guys something uh, of, of an experiment and of the research that I did. I was curious, and I get curious a lot. I, I, I get to thinking, and, and I'm, as I'm just sitting in my office, I say, well, I wonder what the other churches in our area, and not just our area, but the other churches in our world are preaching. On a typical Sunday, uh, most pastors are going to get up in a pulpit, and they're going to preach a message. And it's not just in, in Big Stone and Wise County. It's, it's all across the globe. It's nationally. We know there's churches all over the place that are preaching the gospel or preaching something. And that's what I wanted to know. What were they preaching? What's coming out of the pulpit? What are the people in the pews hearing from their pastor week after week after week? So what I did was I said, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to listen to to 10 sermons. It took me a little bit of time, but I, I found 10 different churches. And I went some local, some nationwide, some that were large churches, and some that were very small. And you could easily uh, get these sermons on, on the websites and on Facebook. I found some that were unknown and some that were known. I found a, a broad range of different denominations. So I sit down and I listen to 10 sermons this week from 10 different churches and 10 different pastors. And here's what I found. You guys ready for this? Here's what's going on in the pulpits of the churches across America. And five of these, and I'm not going to give you all 10, but in half of these, it's going on in our area right at, right around us. I won't give you the names. I won't give you the pastors. Don't even ask me after church. The first one that I found, and some aren't worth repeating, to be honest. There was one that was local, and they had no sermon at all. It was nothing but a time of sharing. No sermon, no, no Bible opening, no gospel, nothing. The second one was a big name church. This guy is a well-known pastor. I won't tell you who he is. And I turned on his website expecting to hear him preach. And up walks a, a woman to preach in his church. And the title of her sermon was Overcoming Life's Obstacles. And that was a long hour for me. The next sermon was a local pastor, and he preached the power to overcome spiritual failure. There was another big-name guy who preached on the feeling of incompleteness, talked a lot about loneliness and how you can feel better about yourself. A local pastor, I I listened to this one, and and I had to fast-forward through a lot of this. It was a bunch of pointless rambling, and all he did was at the end, he said, now you can ask Jesus into your heart, and you can have life and peace and joy. And I sit there and I thought, he, he thinks he's preaching the gospel, but the gospel is so much more than just asking Jesus into your heart. Another big name pastor preached a sermon called Extra Mile Blessings. He should have called it the Extra Smile Blessings. But anyway, the Extra Mile Blessings. And he said, if you go the extra mile, God will bless you with, with extra blessings. If you'll just go the extra mile and do a, a little bit more. And the last one that I listened to was a local pastor who... The title of his sermon, and I thought this was amazing, was The Simple Gospel. I thought, here we go. This guy's got it. But no, his message was nothing more than God loves everybody. He says there's a big, beautiful world out there full of beautiful people who God loves and wants to save. So the conclusion is, and I just gave you a handful of them, is is here's my conclusion. Most people in the pews on Sunday morning are not hearing the gospel. Most people in the pews on Sunday morning are, are not getting, or they're getting an inconsistent, because I didn't listen to every sermon the pastors were preaching, but they're getting a, a confused or an inconsistent gospel. It's absent, it's missing, and nine out of the ten, I did not hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Paul's warning about in First Timothy. The church at Ephesus was starting to sway 
Or they were starting to swerve. Or like a shipwreck, they were starting to go in the wrong direction and, and preaching the wrong things. And a lot, a lot of these sermons that I heard this week, it wasn't blatant heresy. It wasn't, it wasn't a whole lot of error. But what it was, was exactly what we said in verses 3-7. through seven. It was strange things. It was senseless things. It was silly things. And a lot of it was just flat out stupid things. Again, not heresy. Not blatant error. But just not the gospel. And Paul gets fired up when a church isn't preaching the gospel. And so he goes about here to correct it. He said, let's not get, in verses 3-7, through seven, let's not get focused on these little silly things. Let's not get the law wrong. And then he goes right into, here's what we ought to be preaching. Here's what our message ought to be. You, you guys need to, to get rid of all that other stuff and stand up and preach the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think that's a great need of our day. That's what he's going to teach us here. Verses 3 through 11, don't do this. Verses 12 through 17, here's the gospel, preach this. Here's the simple gospel. Here's what the world needs to hear. It's a complicated world, and a complicated world demands a simple gospel. The world needs it, the church must preach it. It's the only way anyone will ever be saved is by hearing the simple gospel. I'm going to say this because a lot of these churches not preaching the gospel, will never see anybody saved. They'll never see anybody grow. They need to get back to the simple gospel. Paul is calling the church back to the main message, the simple gospel. So let's look at it. I broke this down into three points and we'll work our way through it. And I want you to walk out of here tonight knowing what the simple gospel is. Number one, I want to show you the testimony of the, of the simple gospel. As Paul here shares his testimony, and he does this throughout the scriptures, I think he's, he shares his testimony, we're going to talk about what a testimony is here, but he shares his testimony at least five times in the New Testament. He shares what happened to him. He shares the power of the gospel to save somebody like him. So he goes into his personal testimony. And he starts it there, in, in really in verse 13, because he's going to give us three things of his testimony. The before, the what happened to him in the moment, and then the after. And every single one of us ought to have this. There ought to be a, a before, there ought to be a here's what happened to me, and there ought to be a here's what I am now. So he, started, he has it here in verse 13 where he says, here's what I was before. Here's what I used to be. Here's, here's what uh, as such some of you were. Here's who I was. Verse 13. Don't let anybody ever preach a gospel to you. That leaves out there is a before and there is an after. There is an old things passing away and there's a, all things become new. So he says here, who was, who used to be. And he gives us three things that he used to be. And you can fill in the blank of what you used to be. If there's not a you used to be something, then you're not saved. Who used to be? Watch this. Who was before a blasphemer. Which means to speak evil of or to, to slander. And it's not just to speak evil of somebody. It's to speak evil of or to slander God. This would be him breaking the really the first four commandments that we went over last week. He is slandering or blaspheming God. And he never really blasphemed God because he thought he was serving the Jewish God, Yahweh. So when he says, I blaspheme God, he was blaspheming Jesus Christ who is God. And then he says, I was a persecutor. So imagine that. That's his first sin. I'm blaspheming God. And then I'm a persecutor. Which means he was murderous. He opposed the church. 
He killed Christians. He was hunting them down. He was known as Saul the hunter. He was a, a manslayer. He was going out murdering Christians. So now we're moving into the other half of the Ten Commandments. He's, he's sinned against God and now he's sinned against fellow man by murdering them. Here's what I used to be. I used to blaspheme God and to persecute Christians. And here's another word. He was injurious. Which really Paul made this word up. It's, it's original here that it means he's a violent aggressor. It means fierce. It means he was wild like a ravaging animal. He was a man of blood. Uh, Acts 9 says he was breathing out threats and slaughtering. Which means he breathed it in and he breathed it out. Which means he lived for slaughtering Christians. He loved it. He enjoyed it. When we talked about this morning that he was holding the coats of those who were stoning Stephen. He loved it. He ate it up. He laughed at it. He thought it was the greatest thing in the world to see Christians die. He wanted to completely get rid of Christianity. That's who he was. He was a bad man. Doing this to the church. Doing this to Christians. Jesus even looked at him and said, Why persecutest thou me, Paul? He was doing it to Jesus. Paul, before he got saved, was Saul and was the greatest threat to Christianity in the entire world. He was enemy number one. That's who he was. I'm going to stop here and ask you this. Do you remember what you was before? Every single one of us has a past. It may not be as bad as Paul. You say, well, I wasn't like this. I wasn't a blasphemer or a persecutor or injurious. You might not be as bad as Paul. I know we're not all as bad, but we're all bad. Every single one of us are sinners. Bad. And that's exactly where Jesus found him. Because then he says, here's the moment of salvation. If that was before salvation, here's the moment that he was saved. Because he says there, but. And you guys know I love the buts of the Bible. Because it, 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 it transitions us from what I was to now something happened and everything changed after that. So he says, but. This is the moment. This is when everything changed. This is when the, the lights came on. You say, what happened? He says, I obtained mercy. Yes. And in Acts chapter 9, when Jesus knocks him off his high horse... He was shown mercy. That Jesus didn't show up and treat him how he deserved. That Jesus didn't show up and say, now let me give you what you got coming. You deserve judgment and you deserve hell and, and you deserve a, a double from what you've already done to, to, to my people. That He showed up and He didn't punish him, but He showed him mercy. He pitied him. He treated him with mercy. Thomas Godwin, a Puritan, says that this... He, he, said this verse was, I was be mercied. That Jesus met me and showed me more mercy than he could e you could ever imagine. He didn't find mercy. He was shown mercy. He didn't go looking for mercy. Mercy found him. As Saul, the hunter of Christians, became the hunted by Christ. And then it goes on and says, yeah, I was shown mercy. And watch this. Because I did it ignorantly in unbelief, which is, I didn't even know what I was doing, but I was doing it wrong. I wasn't a blatant sinner throwing my fist up at God. I thought I was doing right. So I, I was doing it ignorantly, but it's still sin. And then in verse 14 it says, and the, Not only was I shown mercy, but I was shown grace. And the grace of our Lord was, how much was it? The more sin you have, the more grace you need. And he said, the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant. 
that it was like the Niagara Falls flooding down over his soul. The word exceeding is hyper. It is super, super, super grace. That God showed me more grace than I could ever imagine. And with grace came faith. And with grace and faith came love. And he's, he's sitting there saying that when I met Jesus, it, it wasn't judgment and it wasn't punishment and it wasn't hell that He poured out on me. It was mercy and it was grace and it was love and it was faith. And it, it just kept coming and, and coming and, and it flooded over my soul. I can't imagine how gracious God has been to me. That's exactly what's happened to all of us when we're saved. That when He finds us, we're sinners. And He just floods our soul with mercy and, and grace and, and love and, and faith with overflowing. And it says He found it all in Christ Jesus at the end of verse 14. You know why it's in Christ Jesus? Because nobody else offers mercy but Jesus. Nobody else died on the cross for our sins but Jesus. You can't find this anywhere else. And Paul was overwhelmed by it in verse 14. Paul never got over it. Paul was never the same. In that moment when he said, but this happened, the, the one who hated Christ become the one who loved Christ. In that moment, the one who blasphemed God now confesses Jesus as Lord and Savior. In that moment, the greatest enemy of the church became the greatest servant of the church. In that moment. There's a miracle of grace that took place in that moment when Jesus saved Paul. That happened in the moment. Now, I'm not going to take a whole lot of time on this, but every single one of us has that moment. When our eyes are open and the flood of mercy and grace and love and faith is poured out on our soul. And we become overwhelmed by what He's shown us and what He's done for us. If you don't have that, I know the mercy and the grace of God. You might not be saved. This is a part of the testimony. This happened to me. It doesn't have to be an exact time or a day, but you know the, the flood of mercy and grace and love and faith has been poured out on your soul. And you say, what is he now? Because that's what a testimony is. I was before, this happened, and now what? Verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is, I keep thanking Him. I like that. When He says, I, I, I thank and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, it's in a tense where He's saying, and I keep on thanking Him over and over and over and over and over. And I never get over it and I never stop praising Him. And I never stop thanking Him. I, I'm amazed at what He's done for me. And, and, and even more so, more than saving me, look what He did. He enabled me or gave me strength to let me serve Him in the ministry. That's what that is. It's to be a servant. I love that. By putting me into the ministry. Give me the task of serving Him. Of caring for His people. And what He's saying here, if I was going to translate it, it would be, I can't believe that Jesus saved me. And now I can't believe that He's given me the task of serving Him. He has been so gracious to me that He didn't just save me. He now lets me serve the church that I was persecuting. There's no complaint from Paul here. He's saying it's a privilege to serve the church. Just, just to serve is good enough for me. So this is Paul's testimony in verses 12 through 14. The testimony of the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. This is unique to Paul because everybody here has a unique testimony 
Paul has his own testimony of what happened to him, but every single one of us has a universal testimony that it all, everybody's testimony has these three parts. I was this, this happened, and now I'm this. And without that, you don't have a testimony. And if we're preaching the gospel, our churches should be full of this testimony. If we're preaching the gospel, and I'll repeat that, if churches are preaching the gospel, everybody in the church should have this testimony. And we should be seeing testimony after testimony after testimony of the power of the gospel to save sinners. There should be people in in the pews saying, I know exactly what I used to be. I I know what He did for me in the moment. And I I know where I'm at now. I'm not as good as I want to be. But I thank God that I'm not what I used to be. That's the power of the gospel to give us all a, a testimony. And churches ought to be full of this. There ought to be people sitting in the pews who say, I used to be a drug addict. But He showed me mercy and grace and love and faith. And now I'm no longer a drug addict. I used to be a a homosexual, but He, Jesus, showed me mercy and grace and love and gave me faith. And now I'm no longer a homosexual. I used to be that. Churches should be full of alcoholics who used to to run to the the alcohol for, for help and for comfort. But Jesus showed me mercy and grace and love and gave me faith. And and now I'll no longer run to the bottle. I'll run to Jesus. The church ought to be full of people who who used to be hypocrites and self-righteous and and think they were better than everybody else. But Jesus showed me who I really am and and how I sinned against Him. And and now I'm no longer like that. I know how bad I am and how undeserving of grace that I am. church should be full of that. I saw a picture of a guy on the internet just yesterday on Facebook. An old friend of mine who got saved. As I was preaching at the church in Appomattox. I won't mention him by name. You wouldn't know him. He don't watch this. So I could say his name and it wouldn't be no big deal. But I remember him walking into church one Sunday. And I was 27 years old. Coming out of a biker gang. Long ponytailed hair. Tattoos. And me and him become the best of friends at that church. He called me after church one Sunday and he said, I need to get saved. <laughs> And he'd sit down and tell you all the things that he used to be. All the things that he used to do. Who he used to ride with. And all these things that happened in his life. He'd tell you, then I met Jesus. And he showed me mercy and grace and and love. And he gave me faith. And now I believe. And yesterday, he got married. And and he's so much different than what he used to be. What a testimony to to the power of the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. Churches are full of this. I can tell you about another family in Appomattox that the dad came forward on a Sunday and he got saved. He said, I need you to go to my house and I need you to share the same message with my wife. I walked in, shared it with her, shared it with a teenage daughter and a teenage son and a middle school aged child. Whole family saved. Going to church still today. It's the power of the simple gospel of Jesus. And I'm telling you here, we've got a church not full but in pews all, all around. That somebody somewhere preached a simple gospel to you. Yeah. That's the power of the gospel. And wherever you were and whatever you were doing, you say, well, I'm not, a, I'm not Paul. I wasn't a biker gang. I wasn't a blasphemer. But you were bad. Yeah. While you were yet sinners, that's where he found you. And somebody, and you need to be thankful for somebody who will stand up and preach a simple gospel to you. 
Because these other sermons that you'll hear, they may be self-help and they may help you get through tomorrow, but a simple gospel will change your life and help you get to eternity. And somebody somewhere, I don't know who it was, it might have been me, it might have been somebody else, preached a simple gospel to you and you found the mercy and the grace and the love and the faith that Jesus gives and now you're not what you used to be. That's the testimony of the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. And if a church is preaching that, we'll have pews full of testimonies. But if a church ain't preaching that, you ain't going to have no testimonies in the church. You know what you're going to have? A bunch of people sitting in the pews who's the same thing they've always been. There's a lot of churches out there that's, there's nobody changed. There's nobody any different. They ain't changed in years. No gospel being preached. Romans 1.16 says it's, for the, it's the power of God unto salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it says, for it's the power of God unto salvation. It's the power that saves. Preach the simple gospel. So it's a testimony of the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. Point number two. Not just the testimony of the simple gospel, But I want to give you the truth of the gospel. Because you're sitting there saying, wow, that's a testimony. That's a great story. Paul's life was forever changed by by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what's the contents of the gospel? What's the truth of the gospel? And that's what he gives us in verse, verse 15 and 16. He gives us the truth of the gospel. Here's the gospel. Here's what we need to be preaching. He says in verse 15, this is the truth. This is what we need to grab a hold of. And he tells us this is the truth. Watch this. In verse 15 he says, this is... And you can take faithful saying, but what it is, is this is the truth. (laughs) Not like everything else that's senseless and strange and silly that people are going to argue about and fight about. You see that? That's what verse 3 through 7 is about. It says all it does is bring about questions where somebody's on this side and they're arguing about this. And somebody's on, on that side and they're arguing about this. I think Jesus is going to come back in the, in the middle of the tribulation. I think He's coming back before the tribulation. I don't think He's coming back at all. And everybody's just arguing about different things. He says, no, 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 no. Here, this is true. This is a faithful saying. Take this to the bank. Stake your life on this truth. This is the truth of God. He uses that saying five times in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. This is a faithful saying. Go look them up and study them. They say this was the confession of the early church. This was something that they taught their children. This is something that they, they had their kids to memorize. It was so important. So what they're doing here when he says this is a faithful saying and worthy of everybody to accept it. He said everybody needs to believe this. No matter who you are, where you're from, this should be universally accepted. So this should be, this shows me that they were teaching their people the gospel and it was universally known in the church. That from a child they knew what the gospel was. And you could go to a lot of people in church settings today and ask them what's the gospel and they couldn't tell you. You could go to a lot of pastors who are standing up in pulpits and say what's the gospel and they couldn't tell you. So he says, here, we know what the gospel is. This is a faithful saying. It's true. And it's worthy of everybody believing it. And then he gives us, in eight words, the gospel. Here it is. Memorize this. Teach your children this. This is the truth of the gospel. Every word in this little tiny sentence is chosen carefully. There's never been so much said in eight words. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
That's the gospel. And can you believe that I listened to 10 sermons this week and in only one of them I heard those words? And it doesn't even have to be those words. But something about Christ and coming into the world, saving sinners and how He did that, that's got to be in there somewhere. And in 9 out of 10 sermons, I heard none of that. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I don't want to go down through every one of these little things and takes all kinds of time because I think I could preach a whole sermon on Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Memorize that. I should say it so many times tonight as you walk out of here saying Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's one of the greatest sentences in the history of sentences. You need to know what it is. So he talks about Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus came into the world. Christ Jesus, the person of the gospel, is Jesus Christ. We stand up and we do not preach me and me improved. We preach Christ and Him crucified. He is the person of the gospel. Preach Jesus. This says He came into the world. You see that? Which means He came into, which means He existed before He came into. Which means that He came from somewhere in order to come into, He had to be somewhere else. I know it's theological, but He was not made or created. He didn't come into being. He came into the world. He's a pre-existent one. He's a pre-existent Son of God. John 1 says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Hebrews 1 says He is the brightness of His glory. Which means He shines forth with the glory of God Himself. And the express image of His person. Everything that God is, Jesus is. And then it says, into the world. This is His incarnation. This is His humility that He came from heaven into a fallen and dirty, sinful world. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who thought it not robbery, who, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. He came into the world. And why did he come? Let's go back to those sermons that I listened to. He didn't come into the world to solve our problems. He didn't come to the world to help us to fulfill our, our full potential. He didn't come to the world to give me a better life or to help me to overcome loneliness and obstacles and failures. He didn't come into this world to help me with my loneliness. He didn't come into this world to make me a better person. He came into this world to save me. That's why He came. It says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To rescue sinners, to deliver sinners, to redeem sinners. And who are these sinners? Verses 9 and 10 gave us a long list. He came into the world, and I want to read it to you. I don't know if you guys are, are with me on this or not, but this is the kind of sinners He came into the world to, to save. Look at verse 9. He came into the world to save lawless and disobedient sinners. Ungodly sinners. Unholy sinners, profane sinners, murdering sinners, manslaying sinners, whoremongering sinners, homosexual sinners, lying sinners, perjuring sinners, and every other kind of sinner that you could think of. Jesus came into the world to save that sinner. You're not on that list, but you're some other kind of sinner. And Jesus came into the world to save you, a sinner. This is the gospel. You're not hearing this today. You don't hear from the pulpit. I didn't hear one time that we're all a bunch of sinners. 
And one guy said, we're all, uh, there's a world full of beautiful people. Said Jesus, beautiful people? There's a, a world full of worms. There's a world full of sinners and wicked and, and evil sinners and blasphemers and injurious and, 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 and persecutors. He didn't come to save those who make mistakes. He didn't come to save the messer-uppers. He came to save sinners. And if anybody's ever going to be saved, they must first know that they're a sinner. You're not getting that preached in churches today. Paul knew he was a sinner, didn't he? Watch these next words. <laughs> of whom I am the chief. I like this because in verse 15, again, this is the gospel. You need to know this. It says here, pay attention. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's a universal statement. That is a we are all sinners. You get, you get you with me there? Every single one of us. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. We've all gone out of the way. There's none that even seeks God. We're all going in the wrong direction. We're, not, we're, we're, we're walking around. They say, well, I'm, I'm looking for God. You'll never find Him. You're a sinner. You're blinded. You're, you're in the dark. You're walking around in a dark room and you're blind. You'll never find God. We're all a bunch of sinners. That's universal. That's a universal statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners universally. But here he goes, it's not just universally, it's personally. Which I've told you for weeks that this is, this is what we got to get. That it's not just everybody's a sinner, it has to get to this guy's a sinner. That's where Paul's at. Everybody's a sinner, but you want to know who the worst of all of them is? This guy right here. I'm owning it. I'm a sinner. And I'm not just any sinner. I'm the, it says the chief. He's the big chief. I saw a shirt at the G3 conference. I don't know if you guys saw it or not. At one of those booths. And it, all it was was a skeleton with a big chief headdress on it. And it said 1 Timothy 1.15. And one of the guys looked at me and said, what does that verse say? You're preaching 1 Timothy. What does it say? And I started sweating. I don't know. I'm not there yet. I feel so bad. I'm the Bible guy. I should know this. And then I saw the headdress. <laughs> I said, chief of sinners verse. <laughs> the chief of all sinners. We need to get that shirt. That's next summer's shirt. <laughs> it shows what we think about ourselves. we got a great Savior, but you know what we are? A bunch of sinners. Because that's what the Gospel does. It doesn't... Make us feel better about ourselves, right? That's what you got today. A bunch of self-esteem preachers. Oh, you need to feel better about yourself. You need to love yourself before you can love anybody else. Love you, 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 you. And Paul says, nah, -uh, it ain't about self-esteem. I am the chief of all sinners. I'm a lowly sinner and he's a great savior. That's what the gospel does. It brings me down and him up. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst of sinners. I'm the first of sinners. I'm the worst of them all. You say, Paul's being, he's exaggerating here. No. He was a mass murderer of God's people. He left behind. I, I was reading a commentary this week and it said, you have any idea that every one of these letters that Paul wrote, he was writing them to churches. And in a lot of these letters, he mentions orphans and widows. 
So in all these churches that he's writing to, there are kids in that church that he killed their dad. And there are women who are widowed in that church because he killed their husbands. Don't you think Paul really thought he was the worst of all sinners? And he would write and say, take care of the widows and take care of the orphans. I can't believe that I did that. Oh, but God showed me so much grace and mercy and love. Do you see where he's at? I'm the worst of sinners. And I want you to notice one more thing before we move, move on. That this letter was written in 65 A.D. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 55 A.D., which would be 10 years before. He called himself the least of the apostles. You, you with me? Hang with me on this. Five years later, he wrote the book of Ephesians. And he said, I'm the least of all the saints. So he goes in, in 55 A.D., I'm the least of all the apostles. And then five years later, he says, I'm the least of all the saints. He's getting lower. He's not getting higher. And the more he grows closer to Jesus, the lower he sees himself. So in 55 A.D., he's the least of the apostles. In 60 A.D., he's the least of the saints. And in 65 A.D., when he writes this letter, he's the chief of all sinners. So as he matures and as he grows, he's not seeing himself as a better person. He's seeing himself as a lower person. As Paul grew closer to Christ, his view of self got worse. There is no sense of superiority in the church at all. We are better than nobody. So why did God do this? And I love this part. It says in verse 16, how be it for this cause. You see that? Why did God save Paul? It says that. You can underline how be it for this cause. Here's the reason. I obtained mercy for what? Was it so he'd get him out of hell? Okay, yeah. Save him. Forgive him of his sins. He gets to go to heaven. That's a good reason to save him. Was it did he save him to, so he could be a preacher? Fine, yeah. Did he save him to, to write most of the New Testament? Sure, yeah. But the number one reason that God saved Paul was to make him a showcase. Here's the reason. That's what it says. How be it for this cause? Here's why I obtained mercy. Here's why God showed me mercy and grace and, 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 and love and, and gave me faith. That in me, you see that? That in me. First, before anybody else, Jesus might show how long suffering and patient he is. That Jesus would set me up as an example or a showcase. We walked through Wise's Fall Fling yesterday and saw all these tables and all these booths and all these different things in there and walked by the Pound Mountain Boys booth. I don't know if you guys know who that is. That's Johnny and his sister and brother-in-law. They make these tables and they make beautiful tables and they had a sign that says Pound Mountain Boys and anything to do with Pound I love. And he had all these tables laid out. And as I walked up, and I said, hey, Uncle Johnny. And he said, Josh, come here. Or he said, preacher, come here. I never, never, never can get used to it. My uncle calling me preacher. But he said, come here. Let me show you something. And he showed me one of the most beautiful tables that I've ever seen in my life. About chest high, big wooden legs, that epoxy had made it just shine. He said, look at this table. 
He said, people walk by and they see it and they, 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 they just want to touch it and, and to, to rub it and to, and to talk about it. And he said, this table's here so they can see what kind of work that we can do. And if they don't like this one, we can, we can make something else for them that's a lot like this one. But here's our work. Here's what the, the Pound Mountain boys can do. And people walk by and say, whoa, wow. Them people from Pound are awesome. <laughs> And they are. You know, and it's just, and, that's, and I thought about that yesterday as I was walking past these tables and everybody had these little booths and they're, and they're showcasing all, all their, their handy, handy work. Are you with me? And God is taking Paul and saying, here at my booth, here's Paul. Here's my handiwork. Here's what I can do. If I can save Paul, and he did then I can save anybody if I can show patience with this guy who is injurious and persecuting and blaspheming and I didn't send him to hell and I didn't judge him but I saved him and changed him and if I can do that with him, I can do that with anybody. That's what he's saying here. Let me read it again. Why, did I, why was I saved? Why did I obtain mercy? So that Jesus Christ might show everybody how patient He is for a pattern. I didn't even read that. Here's the example. You see that? That's what the word pattern is. To them which should from this moment on believe on Him to life everlasting. So Paul said, I'm going to showcase to everybody from this point into eternity of what, I'll say it this way, of what God can do, but also what the gospel can do. That's a good point. God put Paul on display. The worst sinner in the world, the hardest of hard cases, to show across the ages that if God can save Paul, the worst of all, he can save anybody. That if God can save Paul, he can save anybody. If God can save Paul, there's no hopeless case. Jesus loves the hard cases. He delights in saving the worst of sinners. The, the worst of sinners, the better Christ looks. It's like Paul says, don't despair. That's like what this verse is saying. Don't despair. He saved me. He can save you. That there's no one beyond saving grace. And I can apply this. Every time we come into church. And I stand up and I preach the gospel. There's nobody too hard to save in these pews. Every time you talk to your family and friends. And you may look at them and say man they're a hopeless case. We've tried and we've tried and we've tried and we've wore out our patience with whether it be a child or whether it be a grandchild or whether it be a mother and a father or a friend or whoever it is. And you just want to throw up your hands and say there's no hope for this one. But with the gospel, there's hope for all the hard cases. Every time we look at our world and I look at our world and I say, oh, there's nothing that can be done. It's too bad. We've gone too far. And maybe we have. I don't know. But I do know this. The only thing that can get our world out of the mess that it's in is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And that's what we have to start preaching. That's what needs to come out of the pulpits. I know it's not popular. I know it doesn't draw a crowd. I know it doesn't entertain. But I do know it saves the hardest of cases. So we preach the simple gospel. What a marvelous truth. What a glorious gospel. And when Paul gets to this, and I've got to move on. I've only got a few minutes left. But when Paul gets to this, and and he's showed us his testimony, and he's told us the truth of the simple gospel, and he gets here, and I I think he's just bubbling up. I I think that he's he's here, and he's talking about what God's done in his life, and it should do that to all of us. It's just bubbling up in us, and we're sitting there, and we can't hold it in anymore. And we get to the third point, which is the thrill of the gospel. That Paul now stands to his feet. And he begins to sing. Who does that? This is chapter 1. And he's putting a song in the middle of chapter 1. It's not like Paul looked at his secretary and said, get out of him, I need a quote. It's not like he's sitting there trying to look through books and saying, well, what's a good hymn for me to add to this? That'll sound good here. No, Paul stops in the middle of it and says, I've got to sing. It's coming out of my heart because what gospel truth does is puts a song in your heart. And look what he says. This is a thrill. It comes from a heart. This is where it's coming from. I sit there and thought that. Why would he put in verse 17 a song? That's what the gospel does. It puts a song in your heart. The gospel should thrill you to the point of song. The gospel should thrill you to the point of excitement. You have in these churches that aren't preaching the gospel music that has to work up the people in the pew. You got all that. I mean, and, and, you, and I had to do that. Watching a lot of these sermons, I had to take my finger because it was, it was an hour and a half long. And I'm sitting there thinking, where's the sermon at? And, and you know, I have an hour and, a half, uh, hour and a half long thing on Facebook, but it's, it's usually all sermon. <laughs> So I turn these guys on and it's, I'm, I'm taking my finger all the way down and it's song, 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 sermon. And they're up there, they're working it up. Come on. How you feeling? Let's get going. Everybody sing with me. Oh, sing. Oh, sing. Why don't you sing? Let's stir everybody up. And they gotta, they gotta stir it up in a, in a fleshly, in in an emotional way. But if they just preach the gospel, It would put it in the heart. And we'd sing out of the thrill and the excitement of what God has done. We don't have to stir people up to sing when the gospel has excited their heart. And that's where Paul's at here. It it, it goes from his heart to to his lips. You don't have to force people to sing when you preach the gospel to them. So he says, and I don't have time to go through all this, And he starts singing about God. We don't have to create a God worth singing about. We've got a God worth singing about. And he says, now, and again, I talked about it this morning as we started the service. It's a doxology. It's a song that when you go deep in theology, you rise high in doxology. The, The deeper you go in theology, the higher you go in doxology. The more you know about him, the higher you'll praise him. Yeah. I was amazed that maybe you guys were too at G3. The music was so simple. But 6,500 men, women, and children raising their voices up to God because they know who he is and what he's done. 
it blew the roof off that convention center. A bunch of people there thrilled with the gospel, thrilled with Jesus Christ. You need to experience it before heaven. Now, under the King eternal, what a phrase, the King of the ages. It would be the sovereign one. Jonathan Edwards said that it was this verse here that moved him to delight in the sovereignty of God. That he reigns over everything. You know why I think he put King Eternal here? Because he's got a king who is so sovereign that he can even convert his enemies. That he doesn't have to judge his enemies, though he will. He can take the worst enemy of the church and convert him. That's how sovereign he is. He's sovereign over everything. And it says of the ages, the king eternal, that he's, he's sovereign. He was sovereign and ruling before Genesis. He was sovereign and ruling in Genesis. He's sovereign and ruling in Revelation and everything in between. He is our king eternal, the sovereign one, and he's the one that we praise. The sovereign God who saved Paul and can save anybody. That's who we praise. This is the, the immortal God. I don't have time to get into this. What does it mean to be immortal? Immortal? He's not mortal, which means he's never going to die. He's never going to decease. Or he's never going to decay. He's never going to diminish. He's always going to have power to save. It'll never go away. Sovereign to save. Immortal in salvation. Powerful to save. Invisible. You say, what does that got to do with any of this? God is invisible. He's spirit. And we can't see him. Unless God reveals himself to us. You've got a lot of people walking around the world in the dark trying to find God. I'm going to look for him in me. You ain't going to find him in you. I'm going to look for him in society. You won't find him there. I'm going to look for him anywhere I can. Where's God? Where's God? I'll tell you where you find him. In Jesus Christ, his son. He's revealed himself in creation. In his son. And through his word. So he's saying, you want to find God. There's a a place to find him. And then he says, and I don't have to explain this, the only wise God. There's only one God. And then he says, here's what God deserves. And I'll close. Unto that God be glory or honor and glory forever and ever. That word honor, I thought it was interesting as a money word. Be great value. That I hold him to be the most valuable thing in my life. That he is worth more than everything else. I don't have a whole lot that's worth worth much in this world. But I have a few things that I hold on to that is of great worth. I was holding on to one of them today. When Steph handed me a little baby and said, hold on to this. And I grabbed little Hallie and I whispered her in her ear, I love you so much. She is of so much worth to me and I wouldn't let anything in this world hurt her. And I've got four others and I wouldn't let anything in the world hurt them. They are of great worth to me. And I live my life showing them how much they, they're worth to me. You, you with me on that? Don't you do that with your kids? I never, I, I was, before I had kids, I was the most selfish person in the world. You know who, who had the most worth in my life? This guy right here. And then I got married and Steph has great worth and I spend my life wanting to make her happy because she's, she's worth that to me. She's of great value to me. And then I had kids and, and I would do anything in the world for them. They're of great value. 
But what he says here is, there's nothing of more value to me than God. He deserves honor. He deserves glory. I like that. In First Timothy 1.11, he says the gospel is glorious, and the gospel is glorious because the God of the gospel is glorious. So unto him is honor and glory, both now and forever and ever and ever and ever. And then he says, Amen. Which is, everybody who hears this should say amen and agree with me. That's what he's saying. What a song. Now let me ask you this and, and I'll close. I'm doing okay on time. Do you remember what Jesus did in your life? I hope you do. I hope you can still see the change. I hope this has caused you to look back and to say, I know what God did in my life. Yeah. Paul never forgot it. You should never forget it. John Newton didn't forget it. Look what he put on his tombstone. I printed it off today. He wrote it himself. I think it's one of the great tombstones you'll ever find. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and a libertine, a servant of the slaves in Africa, and you can look it up, a picture of his tombstone, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Yeah. Glory. He wanted people to know his testimony on his tombstone. John Newton, I used to be this, then he showed me mercy, and then I changed everything after that. Yeah. Do you have that? Will that go on your tombstone? Josh Tompkins. I used to be blank, 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 blank. But he showed me mercy and grace and love and gave me faith. And then he gave me the privilege of letting me serve his church. To him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Yes. Never forget the power of the gospel in your own life. Never forget the power of the gospel in your own life. And when you see the power of the gospel in your own life, you'll see the importance of the preaching of the gospel in the church. But this is our message, and we better not back down from it. It saved Paul. It's what saved you. It saved me. And it can save anyone who believes. That's why old Josh preaches the gospel every single sermon. Because Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of it. For it's the power of God and salvation unto everybody who believes. Even the chief of sinners. That's the gospel. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the chief. That's why we stick with the simple gospel. We don't preach that. It's about me and me improved we preach a gospel that is Christ and him crucified. That's the simple gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the simple gospel. And I think this is a good reminder for all of us here tonight. That we need to stick to the simplicity of the message that you've given us. That this is what we need to preach. This is what we need to stand on. This is what the world needs to hear. I know there's other things to teach and to go through, but the primary message of the church that we do not swerve from in one bit is the simple gospel of Jesus Christ.
So we thank you, God, that it's the power that saves. It's the only way that people will be saved. And I pray that in this church, as we preach it, that we will see more people with testimonies like Paul's, like mine, like others. A testimony of the power of the, of the gospel and of the work of the Spirit and what Christ did for us on the cross. So thank you for this healthy, good reminder for us. And as we close again, unto you be honor and glory forever and ever and ever. Amen.